thankful to uh, be with you this morning in worship. If you have your Bibles, we're going to turn to John chapter 5. Back to the Gospel of John chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 17 through 30, but um, before we read that, I'll just remind you what's happening in John chapter 5. Um, at the beginning of this chapter, Jesus comes to the uh, the man who was a paralytic there at uh, the pool of Bethesda. He had been um, he had been crippled for thirty eight years and uh, waiting for someone to come and and put him into the waters that he might be healed. Jesus comes to him and asks him, "Will you be made whole?" And then, essentially, I say essentially, this is what happens. Jesus says, pick up your bed and walk. Okay? He tells the man to get up and to walk. And so this miraculous healing occurs there at the pool of Bethesda. A man who had been uh, crippled for 38 years is made whole. And so he picks up his bed, this little reed mat that, again, uh, probably weighed somewhere between three and five pounds, and he carries it. Well, the Jews see this and they make a note or John makes a note that all of this happened on the Sabbath day. So the Jews see this and they say, what are you doing carrying a burden on the Sabbath? You're breaking the law of Moses. And uh, the, the man who was healed says, well, the guy who healed me told me to do this. And they say, who is this guy? And he didn't know. Well, then Jesus comes back and talks to the man and then the man immediately goes back to the Jews and says, okay, I figured out who it was that healed me. It was Jesus. And then verse 16 says, John chapter 5, verse 16, and therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. Okay, so the Jews are indignant with Jesus. They are upset that Jesus has broken the Sabbath law in their understanding, or at least in their mind. Now, the reason that I set this up is because the rest of this chapter is going to act like a courtroom scene. So verses 17 through 30 we need to read these. It'll help you if you read these and understand these as if Jesus is is taking or stepping into the place of being his own defense attorney. Okay, The Jews are saying, you have violated God's law. And Jesus is going to say, you have no idea who I am. Okay, I have not violated the law. And the law that you're saying I violated is actually the law that I came up with and implemented to begin with. Okay? I, I'm not violating the law. In Mark, he would say it this way. It's a different story, but it's a similar scenario. He would say the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Okay? And you want to know what the Lord of the Sabbath does on the Sabbath? Whatever He wants to do. It's His. Okay? But he's, He'll take a different, little bit of a different route here. So verses 17 through 30, Jesus is going to be His own defense attorney and He's going to give... Um, He's going to give three main arguments. And then in verses 31 through 47, he's going to call in three witnesses, three witnesses who will bear witness of the three claims that Jesus has just made. The witness of John the Baptist, the witness of the Father, and the witness of the Scriptures. Now, we're not going to be looking at 31 through 47 this morning. It's just too much material to cover. But again, I think it's going to be helpful if when you're, when you're thinking about John 5, 17 through 47, you're thinking of a courtroom scene. If you're not thinking that, you're going to be overwhelmed with a bunch of details and a bunch of arguments, and it's going to be kind of difficult for you to figure out, where do I put these and what's going on here? Well, what's going on is that Jesus is making a legal defense, legal as in the Mosaic law, a legal defense of his innocence to the charges that the Pharisees or the Jews here have brought against him. So, um, the argument here that the Pharisees bring up or the Jews bring up is that he uh, he violated the Sabbath. And Jesus' argument here is, 
in, in verses 17 through 30 is that in violating the Sabbath or your accusation that I violated the Sabbath or rebelled against God's law is false. The reality is, not only have I not rebelled against God's law or God's will, I am carrying out God's will. What I'm doing is consistent with the will of the one whom you say I violated. So we'll start with... um, uh, verses 17 and 18. Okay. So you've, you've broken the Sabbath. You've violated the will of God. And Jesus begins with argument number one, verses 17 through 18. It says, but Jesus answered them, my father worketh hitherto and I work. Therefore, the Jews sought the more to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Okay, argument number one that you can see, as far as the Jews were concerned, didn't go well for Jesus. Argument number one is Jesus claims equality with God. Jesus claims equality with God. They say you've broken the law of God. Jesus says you don't understand. I am God. Okay, the, the, the phrase in, in, in the KJV is kind of difficult to understand as far as the wording of it. My father worketh here unto, I'm sorry, my father worketh hitherto and I work. Um, almost every other English translation translates it this way. My father is working until now and I myself am working. Okay, Jesus says, I'm just carrying forth and carrying on the work of the Father. My Father is working up until now, and now I myself am working. Now, thematically, what's going on here, and we want to continue to reach back and just emphasize that John has told us in in his introduction everything in seed form that's contained in this gospel. By now you remember, it may be getting on your nerves at this point that I keep going back to it. But, but it's, it's, it's true and it's there and it's, it's what John is emphasizing. Um, if you could know or if you could prioritize what is it that's important that I understand, that I know about Jesus Christ, well, this is it. This is it. It's all found there in John chapter 1. Okay, and you'll turn back there. What, what John is going to reinforce here thematically, or maybe just illustrate through Jesus' interaction with the Jews, is this truth. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. You see, what Jesus says whenever He says, my Father's been working up until now and and, and I myself also am working, that's just just a way for Jesus to say, I am carrying out the will and the work of God my Father. What I'm doing here is consistent with His work. We could say it in several ways and we'll look at some passages that say this, but... Essentially, he's saying, I'm doing the work that the Father has sent me to do. I'm doing the work that the Father called me, anointed me to do. The work that I'm doing is not in violation with God's will. It is a fulfillment of God's will. And this is really a characterizing aspect of the life and ministry of Jesus. You remember in Luke chapter 2, verse 49, whenever um, Mary and Joseph accidentally left Jesus in uh, the temple and they go back to, to find Him. And, and, and then whenever they uh, confront Jesus about what, what were you doing? You remember what He says? I must be about my Father's business. Right? I must be about my Father's business. 
it made it, it was Jesus's sole mission. It was his sole motive during his earthly life to be about his father's business. One of the things that he's claiming here to the to the Jews, and and I'm not sure if they've picked up exactly on this much of it at this point, but one of the things that he's claiming is I can't take a single breath without it being motivated by doing the will of the father. Can you imagine that? Everything I do in word, in thought, in deed, I do it because it's my meat to do the will of him who sent me. That's what Jesus is saying. In John chapter 9, verse 4, Jesus says, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no man can work. Jesus is saying during my earthly life, during my earthly ministry, I must work the works of him that sent me. It's my job. It's my mission. It's why it's why the father sent me. John chapter one, verse three, which we just read, all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. Okay, the truth is, is that the Son, that is Jesus Christ, from the very beginning, Genesis 1-1, was being used by the Father to carry out His works. Who was it in the beginning that created the heavens and the earth? Well, according to John chapter 1, verse 1, it was Jesus Christ. He's the Creator. He's the one through whom the Father created all things. And so this is nothing new. For Jesus to come to earth to execute the will of the Father didn't start in the incarnation. It's what's been happening from all eternity. God has been working His works through His Son from all eternity. And the point that's being driven here is that the Father is exclusively working His will and carrying out His works through the Son from all eternity. That's a very unique claim, isn't it? That's the claim that world religions hate. Okay, we're, we're getting into very distinctive teachings here. And not only is it a very distinction, uh, sorry, a very distinct and a very exclusive type teaching, um, but it's an offensive teaching and it's a necessity. If we're going to if we if we're going to believe on Jesus Christ, if we're going to believe the things that the father would have us to believe about his son, okay, this is not up for grabs. Jesus is not on par with anybody else. There's no other person that you could put at the same level as Jesus Christ and be okay with the Father. It's not the way it works. Jesus says, number one, when the, fair, when the Jews say, what are you doing healing someone on the Sabbath? Jesus says, I'm doing what I've always done. And that is I'm carrying out the work of God. I'm carrying out the work of God. Now, we're going to push it just a little bit further here because Jesus does. Jesus says, I'm carrying out the work of God because I am God. John chapter 10, verse 30, when Jesus says, I and my Father are one. Okay, they are one in nature, one in essence. You remember Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, when, when Paul encourages the saints to put on this attitude, which was also in Christ. It says, even though he was in the form of God and he didn't think it was robbery to be equal with God, he humbled himself. What does that mean? That means that in essence, Jesus was equal with God because again, Jesus was God. He was with the Father from all eternity. We go back again to John chapter 
1, in the beginning, he was with God and he was God. Colossians chapter 3 really marries these two ideas that Jesus Christ was sent to execute the works of God or to carry out the works of God and that Jesus Christ was Himself God. Look in Colossians chapter 1. Maybe I should say is Himself God. Colossians chapter 1. In verse 13. Now this is speaking of the Father here. God the Father, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son, in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by Him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that, it, that all things, sorry, that in all things He might have the preeminence, for it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. So, number one, we have in this passage Paul pointing to the fact that Jesus Christ is executing the works of God, the works of the Father. Verse 16 through 17, By Him were all things created that are in heaven and in earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions, principalities, powers. All things were created by Him and for Him. So Jesus is sent to do what He's always been doing. But then secondly, we also have the reality that Jesus is equal with God. Okay? Verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. The, the word first, firstborn there is it, it carries the, the meaning and the significance of what He'll say later on when He would say in verse 18 that He might have the preeminence in all things. Okay, The firstborn is the one who was preeminent, that He would be exalted, that He would be above all. He's the image, the likeness, what Hebrews would talk about as being the visible representation of the invisible God. And then verse 19, it says, it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. Please the Father that in Him all fullness, fullness of God should dwell. So here's argument number one for Jesus. The Jews are upset. They're in a sense putting Jesus on trial for breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus says, number one, can't charge me with breaking the Sabbath because I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I'm equal with God. And as we read, and I pointed this out earlier, it's worth noting that the Jews understood exactly what he was saying. Verse 18, it says, Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Now, several years ago, when I say several, I'm talking about in the 15 to 20 year range, it became very popular, and it's still kind of popular among skeptics to say, you know, Christians have just kind of taken the Bible and have run wild with it and made something out of Jesus that Jesus never claimed for himself. Jesus never claimed that he was God. Well, the Jews didn't understand that to be the case. 
One of the reasons why the Jews were so fired up and one of the reasons why the Jews um, later on in this gospel will hold a really a kangaroo court trial and nail Jesus to a cross and murder him is because they understood that he was saying that he was equal with God, that he was God. John chapter five is kind of the courtroom addition to that. They say, you violated the law. He says, I wrote the law. It's mine. And the Jews become furious. So number one, he claims equality with God. Number two, verses 19 through 20. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of Himself, but what He seeth the Father do. For what things soever He doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth Him all things that Himself doeth. And He will show Him greater works than these, that you may marvel. So argument number two. Jesus claims a uniquely intimate relationship with the Father. Not only does he claim equality with God, but he also claims that there's this unique relationship that he has with the Father that no one else has or that no one else has ever had. Can you think back in the prologue how John really picks up on this and emphasizes this? John 1.18, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Which is in the bosom of the Father. That is, which is, which, which is involved in this intimate relationship with the Father. No one else has known Him this way, but Jesus has. And Jesus has come to declare who the Father is based on His firsthand personal Intimate knowledge of who he is. He starts with verse 19. Jesus answered and he said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do, for what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. It's... uh, Maybe kind of out of the ordinary for us to think about it this way, but as the message goes on and as we look at what we're going to look at this afternoon, hopefully it'll make make sense. But verse 19 is, is painting a picture of a of a an intimate, really discipling relationship that the son has with the father. Now we don't think about it as 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 much um, as it's it's pictured here, and as much as it was just commonplace in the Jewish culture. If a father loved his son in the Jewish culture, part of the expression of that love is to teach that son his trade. The son would grow in his intimate knowledge and relationship with his father as. Day in and day out, he would follow his father's footsteps. He would learn to do the things that his father does. He would learn to appreciate the things that his father appreciated. He would learn to love the things that his father loved. We see back in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6 where fathers are given the task of discipling not just in a let me show you what I do as far as my trade, but let me pass on the knowledge that I have of the Word of God to you and teach you how to apply that and teach you how to know the true and living God. And that was an expression of a father's love to his child. Well, we have a picture here of this unique, intimate, loving relationship that the Father has with the Son. Part of what's being expressed here is that the Father has uniquely revealed everything about Himself to His Son. 
held nothing back. Look in John 8. It's this revealing of Himself. John 8 verse 28 says, Jesus said unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall you know that I am He, and that I do nothing of Myself, but as My Father hath taught Me, I speak these things. There's something more going on here than just some kind of a transfer of information. It's not just that the Father gave Jesus a notebook and said, when you get there, say this. No, it's that the Father fully disclosed Himself. You think about how this works in the Trinity who was in fellowship, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, was in fellowship with Himself from all eternity, loving, enjoying, sharing the glory of the Godhead. Jesus says, I was with the Father, and the Father has taught me, and I'm only telling you what He has revealed to me. I don't say anything that the Father hasn't already said. I'm not doing anything that the Father hasn't already done. John chapter 12, hit the same. Uh, the same vein here. John chapter 12, verse 49. Jesus says, For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me, He gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that His commandment is life everlasting. Whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Father said unto me, so I speak. Again, it's this, this description of this unique, first-hand, personal, discipling in the sense that it's relational knowledge that the Son has of the Father that then He comes and shares with His people. He has declared Him because He and He alone has an intimate knowledge of who the Father is. Now again, you may be thinking, well, what does this have to do with anything? What's the big deal about this? Well, this obliterates the claims of every other world religion. This obliterates the idea that everybody's on a different path that ultimately ends in the same place. No, that's not true. That's not true. The claim that Christians make and the claim that Scripture and the claim that Jesus makes about Himself is that He is the only one who knows the Father and He is the only way to the Father. And so these Jews say, what are you doing? You're violating God's law, Jesus says, number one, I am God. I'm equal with God. He says, number two, your problem is, it's not that they don't know the law of God, it's that they don't know the heart of God. But Jesus does. Right? God's heart was never that a paralytic of 38 years couldn't pick up his reed mat and walk with it if he got healed. It was that you shouldn't bear any burdens as far as working and making money and your day-to-day -day type things. Last time we talked about this, we talked about the difference between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. And Jesus says, your problem, Jews, is that you don't know the heart of God. You don't, you don't really know God, but I do. I do. I was with Him. I was in His bosom. I was, I was, as it were, in this intimate relationship, learning about His heart from all eternity. It's, it really is a beautiful picture.
The second part of this is this special relationship, this intimate relationship that Jesus has. And he mentions it is that this special and and intimate relationship that Jesus has with the Father is is motivated by a special love that the Father has for His Son. You know, the Son is given a name above every other name. There's this special love that the Father has for the Son that He has for no one else. Proverbs chapter 8 talks about this. The book of Proverbs is wisdom literature, and in chapter 8 it speaks of wisdom personified, and wisdom personified is Jesus Christ. In Proverbs 8.30, he's talking about being with God during creation and when He made His decrees and so forth and so on, and In verse 30, he says, Then I was by him, that is, in the beginning, I was by him as one brought up with him, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. This is a poetic way expressing that wisdom personified, that is, Jesus Christ was with the Father daily. He was brought up with Him. In other words, the Father has related, communicated to Him His heart, His will. He was His delight daily. The Father's love for Him was intense and was rejoicing always before Him. John chapter 17, Jesus would speak to this as well. In John 17.5, Jesus' prayer is, Now, O Father, glorify Thou me with Thine own self, with the glory which I had with Thee before the world was. You know Romans uh, 3.23, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's where the condemnation comes into play, but not Jesus. Jesus shared a glory with the Father from all eternity. Jesus was in this special relationship unlike any other relationship and He was receiving this love from the Father that trumps every other love. He talks about in John 17, 24, this love that the Father had for Him before the foundation of the world. You remember in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, at the baptism of Jesus, his pronouncement is, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That's nothing new at the baptism of Jesus. The Father had been pleased with the Son from all eternity, the Father had loved the Son from all eternity. And this special relationship, this special love that the Father had for the Son is unlike any other love and any other pleasure that the Father ever had. Now think about how this, some of this may seem kind of theoretical, but it's not. Think about that, how this relates to you. How is it that God's love makes its way to you? Through the Son. Right? How is it that God the Father could ever be pleased with you? Because He's pleased with His Son. How is it that we could ever have any type of security or assurance that the love of the Father rests on us? Well, we talked about this and and hammered it home when we were in Ephesians, and, and, and it's worth hammering home Again, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has given us all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Everything you've ever received from the Father, you've received because you've been placed in Christ. And because God loves Christ, He loves those that are in Christ. And you've been placed in Christ because God 
loves you and would have his love to be lavished upon you was outside of Christ. That was impossible. There was no way for that to happen. And so this intimate relationship that Jesus has with the Father, you get to enter into because you've been placed in Him. Now we'll talk more about the practical side of that this afternoon, but argument number two that Jesus makes when the Jews come and say, what are you doing violating the Sabbath? What are you doing healing a man on the Sabbath? Jesus says, I have a uniquely intimate relationship with the Father that nobody else has. I know His heart. And I know that this doesn't violate His law, it fulfills His law. Number three. We look in uh, John chapter 5, starting in verse 21. John 5.21, Jesus says, For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom He will. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. That all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father, which hath sent Him. And then what Jesus is going to do is he's going to take verses 24 through 30 and essentially break up two tasks that the Father has given him and push into those a little bit. But the third argument that Jesus is going to make is he's claiming that the Father has entrusted him with two unique tasks so that all men would honor the Father through honoring the Son. So again, Jesus is claiming that the Father has entrusted Him with two unique tasks. And He's done that for this purpose. So that the Father might receive honor as men honor, men and women, honor the Son. Okay. Task number one. He's going to flesh it out in verses 24 through 26. Okay, So again, verses 21 through 23 is kind of a condensed version of 24 through 26. I'm sorry, 24 through 30. So starting verse 24, task number one, Jesus has been entrusted with the task of giving life. Jesus exclusively has been entrusted with the task of giving life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on me that sent me, he hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in Himself, so hath He given to the Son to have life in Himself. I'm going to stop there. Um, Jesus has been entrusted by the Father with the task of giving life. Again, John chapter 1, 4 and 5, In Him was life. And the life was the light of men, and the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Thematically, is being unpacked here. Uh, Jesus is the giver of life, both in the present and in the future. So here's what I mean by that. And here's what Jesus, I think, is speaking to. Jesus has been entrusted with the task of imparting spiritual life. You, you, you say, well, I thought it was the Holy Spirit that regenerated. Well, it is, but it's the Son who sent the Spirit. And the Spirit is, is applying the work of the Son. And so we have life through His death. And the Holy Spirit is just carrying out this work that has been entrusted to Jesus Christ. He gives life. Well, the, the, the question is, what is this life that Jesus gives? Well, He mentions it. 
this everlasting life in verse 24, being brought from a state of death to life. Well, what is everlasting life? What is eternal life? Well, just to kind of go straight to the core of it, this life that Jesus has been entrusted with is bringing you to a place to where John 17, 3, you know the Father through the Son. That's life. That you would know God. That you would have an experiential knowledge of who God is through His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the... This is the work that Jesus has been, or the task that Jesus has been given. This is what the Holy Spirit accomplishes as He's sent by the Son. But whenever we take away the mechanics of it, and we could think about it mechanically, but when we take away the mechanics of it and just think about what is the end goal here of this everlasting life, well, I don't think we can do any better than everlasting life is that we would know Him and enjoy Him forever. Now, does it take regeneration? Well, yeah, but, but regeneration is, is just an, a, 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 a means to an end. It's just, it's just pointing us and pushing us closer and closer. In this particular section, verses 24 through 27... Jesus is, is connecting both giving life and executing judgment, and they both hinge on belief. So those who believe are not condemned. Those who do not are condemned. So you have life and judgment both together. How does that work? Well, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says that we are saved by grace, through faith. By grace, through faith. So we don't look at our own belief and say, well, I've saved myself because I'm the one who's, who's mustered up the belief that I've been given. But brothers and sisters, outside of a belief in Jesus Christ, all that's left is condemnation. There is no security. There is no assurance. Jesus is speaking in statements of, of fact here. Those who believe have life. Those who do not are, have come into condemnation or will come into condemnation. So he's been trusted with the task of giving life. Uh, secondly, he's been entrusted with the task of final judgment and entrusted with the task of the final judgment. Let me remind you what Jesus says in John chapter 3. You can turn back there a couple of pages in your Bible if you're in John 5. In John chapter 3, verse 14, as Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the, the, serpent in the wilderness... Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent His Son into the world, um, for God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. So Jesus says a couple of things here. Number one, Jesus says, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world. I came to save the world. And you might think, well, there's a bit of a contradiction there. If Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, how is it that he, can't, he didn't come to condemn the world, but he one day will judge the world? Well, the reality is the world was condemned already. Jesus says this is a condemnation that you love darkness more than light. 
Light has come into the world, but you love darkness more than light. And this is the condemnation. This will be the basis by which Jesus judges. Now think about this. We could have a broad conversation about what will it mean for Jesus to judge those who will be sentenced to everlasting destruction. What will that judgment be based on? And I think the argument that you can make from John chapter 5, John chapter 3, is that the judgment will be based on what did you do with Christ? At least on this side of the cross. What did you do with Christ? Those who believe, it's everlasting life, but those who are condemned are those who rejected, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, Romans 1 talks about. In, in 2 Thessalonians 7, there's this picture of Jesus who comes in fiery vengeance and in judgment. And Jesus is judge. Now there's a bit of irony that we shouldn't miss in this passage. Because in context, Jesus is essentially saying to the Jews, you better be careful in judging me right now. Because I'm going to stand in judgment over you one day. You better be careful in your judgment over me right now. Because in the last day, I'm going to stand in judgment over you. Now, John chapter 5, 22 and 23 says that the reason that the Father has given the Son these tasks, the, the task of imparting life and the task of executing judgment is that all men should honor the Son. All men should honor the Son. Oh, what a hard word for the Pharisees, for the Jews, for the religious leaders of the day to swallow. They thought they were honoring the Father. They had His Word. Jesus will later say, Scriptures bear witness of Me. You've missed it. But they didn't know that. Here's the truth that Jesus is laying out. You cannot reject the Son and honor the Father. You can't do it. It doesn't matter who it is and what it is that characterizes an individual's life. So you could take an individual who was a wonderful person outwardly. They were kind. They were gentle. They had a care for people. Morally, they, they were upright. And for them to reject the Son is for, is for them to reject the Father. And for them to reject the Son and to die in a state of rejecting the Son is for them to enter into eternal condemnation. You see, the message that Jesus brings is not my judgment is based upon all the good things that you did versus all the bad. The judgment of the Son, and, there, and, and, and really the Son learns His judgment from the Father. He says, my judgment is in line with His will. The judgment that He executes is based on what you did with Him. Again, John 14, 6, Jesus is the exclusive way to the Father. And so the question that this passage leaves us with this morning is how have you responded to the claims of Jesus? Okay, we, see how the, we see how the Jews respond, or at least we will see. But there's just really two options. Number one, to reject His rightful authority over us. To reject His claims of who He is and what He's done. Or, 
through the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit, we receive His claims as right and true, bowing the knee to Him as King of kings and Lord of lords. You see, that's what the Jews could never do. It was the Jews who thought they had this special relationship with the Father because Abraham was their father. And Jesus says that doesn't mean anything. Jesus comes in a new and a better way and His people now have a relationship with the Father because they are in the Son who has been treasured by the Father from all eternity. And so that's the question this morning. What do you do with the claims of Christ? Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank You that as an act of Your love, To us, you have given us your son who has revealed his firsthand intimate knowledge of you, who you are, what you're like, and the fact that he has done everything necessary to reconcile your people to you. Father, I pray that you would bless us not to... uh, to make light of what a tremendous gift we've been given in having access to this kind of knowledge that comes straight from You. Lord, we pray that through the power of Your Spirit that You would apply this to our hearts, that You would bless us to see where we've been blind, where, that You would bless us to rejoice in the realities of what we've been given Father, if there are those here who have not yet come to know You, we pray that through the power of the Spirit that You would open their eyes, that You would bless them to embrace Jesus Christ for who He is and what He's claimed about Himself and what You've claimed about Him. Lord, for those of us who have known You and walked with You, I pray that You would deepen our knowledge of who You are, that You would deepen our our commitment to rest in Your Son and Your Son alone. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.